What up, people? Welcome to the Mind Body Hoops podcast. This is your host, Max McCoy. And I just want to start off with a little intro to this podcast and just, first of all, thanking you for tuning in. And secondly, just just so you know what this podcast is about. This is all about you and I learning together. Like this is me following my curiosity and hoping that you can take some value out of it. It's about becoming a better athlete, becoming a better performer by learning from, you know, top experts and top performers themselves and and beyond just being a better hooper and a better athlete and a better performer, this this podcast is a kind of aim to help you and I become just better humans, man. Like, I'm trying to bridge the gap between what makes a hooper and a human healthy and successful and whatever. And this podcast and my brand with Mind Body Hoops is all about, you know, a holistic approach to athletics. And a holistic, you know, is just a well-rounded approach to everything we do, so... If we're happy humans, if we're intelligent humans, if we're well-informed humans, we're going to perform better. We're going to be better hoopers. And uh, that's what this podcast is about, man. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you have an open mind. I hope you are excited about this podcast and are excited to do the small things that will make you great, whether that's becoming happier, whether that's feeding your body what it needs, whatever it is. Like, we're doing this together. Let's knock this shit out, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Mind Body Hoops podcast. So, when I was young, I used to have this weird thing where I felt like I was never getting enough sleep. Like, I felt like school really... School wasn't cool. (laughs) School wasn't cool because school made me get up way too early, and I felt like... I had these days when I was just sad and I was just didn't want to talk to anybody and I couldn't focus and that kind of has translated into like some of my life like I don't get enough rest which I used to blame on school but now I just blame on like modern life where you just have to wake up and grind I feel like I'm just not myself and I can't perform athletically I can't think I can't like if I don't sleep well I can't do a podcast the way I want to do it I can't talk to people I can't bring the energy and the vibe I want to a certain situation And that's why I'm super passionate about today's episode. Today's episode is with sleep doctor, Michael Bruce. He's literally labeled the sleep doctor. He works with celebrities and athletes and help them optimize their sleep, whether you have a sleep disability or just like a normal person like me that doesn't sleep as much as they want sometimes and wants to optimize their performance in their mind. He helps people like that. Michael is a three-time best-selling author, all these books regarding sleep and kind of the mind and health. He's a three-time best-selling author. He is a clinical psychologist. He's been featured on the things like the Huffington Post, Insomnia Blog, Psychology Today. Um, He's been on the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. He appears on talks with like Dr. Oz and he's always on Sirius XM Radio. This guy is legit when it comes to sleep. He knows what he's talking about. He's kind of like an industry leader, industry titan when it comes to kind of sharing this message on terms of what makes healthy sleep healthy um, and what we need to do to have healthy sleep. And and I don't think you guys are new to this idea in terms of how important sleep is, but for me especially, it helps to hear an expert talk about it in a way that's so digestible, in a way that shows me, okay, this is what I need to do to perform at my best. And again, that's what this podcast is about. How can we perform at our best on the court, off the court? In this podcast episode, I say this every time, but I mean this so much. This podcast episode is super important. We talk about how we can instantly improve our sleep right now. We talk about kind of some of the common hiccups people have. We talk about some of the things that are really common in terms of blocking our sleep, things like um, 
let's talk about it right now alcohol marijuana like things like nyquil sleep aids we talk about all that and i just want to preface go into this conversation please with an open mind this is an intellectual conversation i'm not telling anybody that they should be drinking or smoking or whatever but i'm not going to neglect the fact that a lot of people do and so i did ask him i was like yo dude does marijuana hurt your sleep does alcohol hurt your sleep does nyquil hurt your sleep and we talk about that super interesting stuff so i hope you go into this conversation with an open mind Uh, As always, I hope you have some things that you can take away from this episode and apply. I know after this conversation, I 1000% have some stuff I need to do to optimize my sleep, to be able to perform at my best, either athletically or intellectually with like this podcast and my business. And so I hope you guys take a lot away from this episode. Definitely let me know how you like it. And uh, I'll shut my mouth now. I'm sure you're sick of hearing my voice. So time to hear Michael. (laughs) I hope you enjoy this dope conversation I had with the sleep doctor, Michael Bruce. All right, we're recording. Michael Bruce, the sleep doctor, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Um, three-time best-selling author, board-certified sleep specialist, psychologist. How do we encapsulate you? Like, Maybe with your own words, let me know. What does Michael Bruce do? So I'm a sleep doctor. I've been an actively practicing sleep specialist for 19 years where I take care of people's sleep problems. Um, But I've also, over the last probably 10 years, really started getting more into answering non-sleep disordered questions. So yeah, I can answer questions about apnea and narcolepsy and even insomnia, but there's a whole nother category of things that people want to know about, like, can my bedroom affect my sleep? What kind of mattress should I buy? What kind of pillows should I get? Do sound machines really work? Tell me about aromatherapy, you know, things like that. Or I wake up in the middle of the night. What's a strategy for me at that point in time? You know, if I have to go to the bathroom, do I really have to go? What do I need to do? Like, there's lots of questions that seem to come up that aren't sleep disorder related. And so my goal has really been to try to put out um, positive, well-referenced information for people to be able to find and answer their questions. And so if people go to my website, which is thesleepdoctor.com, you can wander over into the blog section, you can check out the product section. There's a ton of information for people to see, read, and learn about. And that's pretty much the goal at this point is just to be a sleep educator um, as best I can. And for me, I remember going way back, like middle school, high school, we'd have these papers where I'd have to like like write a persuasive essay and I would always write about how sleep isn't talked about enough. And I always felt like, you know, being a young kid, like waking up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. for school and feeling so um, just messed up sleep-wise. I was so passionate about this and that's why I'm super excited to talk to you today, kind of pick your brain. What was it that kind of got you? Was it something similar that kind of um, decided you to specialize in something like this? How did you kind of fall into this? Well, it, it was, it was definitely, I fell into it. Like you don't grow up saying to yourself, gee, I want to be a sleep doctor one day. <laughs> like it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, I was getting my PhD in clinical psychology and I was, um, I was, I was about to start my residency and they had different rotations that you could do. And there was a rotation in the sleep laboratory and nobody was doing it. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me why, because I thought it was really cool. I mean, I know how to sleep. You know, I know people have problems with sleep. It's kind of an interesting area of research. And so I volunteered. And um, literally by the third day, I had absolutely fallen in love with clinical sleep medicine. And I knew that was where I wanted my world to be. You know, Max, I get the opportunity to help people that fast. It's Mm. literally unbelievable. There are times where 
I can see a patient in clinic and literally within 24 hours, I can change their life. Wow. Like there's just almost no places in medicine where you can do that so quickly and so effectively. And especially traditional clinical psychology, which is what I am actually, um, that's what my profession is. That's what my degree is in. It can take weeks, months, even years to see treatment gains. Whereas with me, again, it happens very, very quickly. Um, if I notice apnea or I can help somebody with narcolepsy or even insomnia. Now, insomnia will take a little bit longer. It's not That's not a 48-hour deal by any stretch of the imagination, but three weeks, four weeks, and I can usually get people you know, moving forward and, and in the, the path that I think will be most healthy for them. So it's really, it's really just a cool field, um, and um, that attracted me to it. And just the ability to help people so quickly has been great. It really is. And it's something we all kind of understand on some level, but something that maybe not enough people shed light on specifically. So in my head, you know, posing for this conversation, I would love to maybe to hear in your words, hear the end goal. So when you work with someone, what's kind of the end goal you paint for them? What's the picture you paint for them? Like, hey, here's where you're at. Maybe you don't think it's a problem, but here's where you could be. Um, And for my audience being, you know, younger side, some some athletes, some not still athletes, but what's Mm -hmm. that kind of end picture look like? So it's interesting because I feel like there's several different types of people that show up in my practice. So first of all, they're the ones that just have got a sleep disorder, right? So they got apnea, they got narcolepsy, they got insomnia. Um, They're tired of going through the regular system and they want somebody to really focus in on them. That's one type of patient. But the more recently I'm getting much a younger group of people and it's about sleep optimization, right? Mm -hmm. It's about getting that secret edge. It's about how do I make my workouts better? How do I make my productivity higher? Where they're entrepreneurs and they're like, dude, I've got I've got 18 hours in a day that I need to work. I've only got six hours in a day that I can sleep. How can you maximize the sleep that I'm getting? Those are the types of questions now that I'm trying to answer for people. And we're, we're pretty successful at it as well. I mean, it, there's certain things you can do and there's certain things you can't do, but uh, it's surprising how easy it is to begin to optimize your sleep. And I think that's probably an area that your group might find interesting. Yeah. So that's perfect. That's exactly kind of what I'm aiming at is is for that everyday sleeper, you know, like person like me, I don't necessarily have a, a huge issue, but when it comes to just every night getting the ne- necessary sleep, there's a lot of nights that I just don't feel fully rested. And maybe that's, you know, staying up too late, um, you know, staying in my head, whatever it may be, what are the, some of the mm-hmm. things that you point people to, to kind of start to optimize their sleep if they don't have, you know, like you said, a serious disorder. Right. So the very first thing I have people do is discover what their chronotype is. Mm. So this might not be a word that people are familiar with. So let me explain it. So a chronotype, you may not have heard the word, but you've actually heard the concept before. If you've ever heard of somebody being called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. And so my most recent book, which is called The Power of When, is I help people figure out what is their chronotype. It's actually quite simple. If you go to my uh, website, thepowerofwhenquiz.com, what you'll discover is you can take a quiz and in two minutes, you can figure out what your chronotype is. So if we know you're early, we know you're middle, we know you're late, we know you have insomnia, those are kind of the four buckets. Once you discover that, then we figure out what your bedtime should be and your wake-up time should be. This turns out to be the most critical aspect of any program that I do is because if you're going to bed at the wrong time for you, it can make a really big difference. The the concept here is that not everybody should be going to bed at the same time or waking up at the same time. This is an individual thing. And believe it or not, it's all genetics. So these days what I'm doing 
is I'm taking people's 23andMe data or their Ancestry.com data, and I'm working with that, that data and bringing it through a separate algorithm where I look at 74 different sleep markers and can really get almost a roadmap of what's going on for them. And then I can personalize it even more. So getting your chronotype, maybe getting your genetics if you've done 23andMe or Ancestry.com. But if you haven't done that, which is fine, the biggest factor is figuring out what is the time you should be going to bed, what is the time you should be waking up, and then doing that consistently. And when I mean consistent, I'm not just talking five days a week, I'm talking seven days a week. So getting up at the same time on the weekends that you do during the week really turns out to be one of the most defining characteristics of how I can improve both the quality and the quantity of the sleep that you're getting. I didn't know that. And for me, I usually wake up determining on when I go to bed. So, if, and I'm sure a lot of people do. So if I'm going to bed at 11, you know, I'm waking up at a certain time, but if I'm awake till 1am, I'm asleep till, um, you know, much later. If we're not getting to bed until much later in the night, do you think it's still beneficial to still be waking up at that same time, no matter what, and just taking the loss of losing sleep? Yes. And so there's wow. the data is actually pretty consistent. The more, and, and it turns out that your wake up time is more important than your bedtime. Wow. So let's say that we pick a wake up time for you or you naturally have a tendency to wake up when you've gone to bed at a reasonable hour at seven o'clock, let's say, just to make the math simple, right? If you stay up until 2 a.m., do I want you waking up at seven? Yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. Wow. But I want you to stay awake all day. Don't take any naps if you can avoid it and then go to bed at a normal bedtime. Don't go to bed at two o'clock in the morning. Go to bed at your normal 11, 11.30. What happens is if you... So there's a, there's a situation called Sunday night insomnia that occurs for a lot of people. So what happens is they stay up late Friday, sleep in on Saturday, stay up late Saturday, sleep in on Sunday. Well, guess what their body wants to do Sunday night and Monday morning? Mm -hmm. It wants to stay up late and it wants to sleep in. So you really want to avoid what we call a social jet lag or this drifting of your circadian clock. Um, and the, the easiest way to do that is to wake up at the same time every day. That's fascinating. And, and, I can imagine for you being someone who's so well educated in this space that if you do get that night's sleep or let's say a sleep deprivation night where you don't get as much sleep as you want, is it, is it hard for you? And, and cause you don't have that, you know, ignorance is bliss. How do you kind of cope with a night of not sleeping as well? For me, it's like, I beat myself up with like, damn, I should have got more sleep. Damn, I should have got more sleep. And it kind of is this like self, you know, this self-talk that's not healthy. How do you deal with that? So don't do that. Number one, don't beat yourself up, okay? Every night, you have an opportunity to get the rest that you need. Don't, and, and by the way, I'm the sleep doctor and there are nights that I don't sleep well, okay? Mm. Let's just be very clear. We're all humans and we all have issues, right? If something's going on with my kids or my spouse or, or business, if I'm stuck in that, it, it's definitely not so easy to sleep, right? And so don't beat yourself up about something like that, but closer you can get to a level of consistency, here's what happens, is your sleep schedule actually consolidates. You actually need less sleep the more consistent you sleep. I go to bed around midnight, I get up right around 6.17, believe it or not, that's whatever, that seems to be the time that I open my eyes the most often. And so I only need about six hours and 17 minutes of sleep, but I'm the sleep doctor, and most people supposedly need eight hours. So first of all, eight hours is a myth, all right? Very few people need exactly eight hours of sleep. It's personalized, which is the thing that we have to continue to go on, upon is that these general rules of everybody needs eight hours, it's crap. It doesn't really work that way. If you can figure out what's the right amount of sleep to get for you, for your level of performance, that's what you want to zero in on. Look, life happens, right? If you're not doing well one night, 
don't worry about it because here's what I tell people all the time is every bad night of sleep is one step closer to a good night of sleep. As long as you don't take a nap during the day and you let that level of sleep deprivation build, what ends up happening is you're you're tired and then you fall asleep quick and you burn right into deep sleep and then you and then your body will make up for a good bit of that on its own. So don't give yourself a hard time, but again, consistency is the goal, but we don't meet every single goal every single day. Just life isn't that way. So don't beat yourself up. But again, shooting for that consistency is going to be a great idea. And I love that. And uh, for me, I'm just naturally really curious. What is it about the consistency that's so important for me? It just doesn't, maybe you know, the non-scientific background. I, I look at it and be like, well, if I got 10 hours of sleep, but my I'm all over the place, shouldn't that be better than, you know, six hours of sleep, five nights in a row? Why Why is consistency so important? Because in order to get the quality of the sleep that you're looking for, you need to sleep at the right time. So let's take an example. So let's say that you're an early bird and I'm a night owl, okay? I don't know if you're an early bird or not, but I actually happen to be a night owl. And so my, my levels of melatonin don't begin to spike until almost 1130 at night. And then they tail off around 6, 630 in the morning, which is why I sleep during that period of time. If I try to go to bed at 10 o'clock, it isn't going to work because my hormones are not ready to do anything at that period of time, mm-hmm. right? Now, if you did this schedule, right, and you normally go to bed at, let's say, 10 and wake up at, let's say, 5, okay, still roughly 7 hours, if that's what your body schedule is on, if you try, let's so you your melatonin kicks off around um, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and then it peaks, and then it, it goes, and then you're done by 7, if you go to bed at midnight, your melatonin's already been kicked off an hour and a half earlier. Mm. And so you're not going to get as much out of it. And so remember, the body has a circadian rhythm, an internal biological clock where all kinds of things are going, but they're very heavily timed. And so the closer you can get to the timing of, as an example, melatonin increase and then eventually decrease, the better quality sleep you're going to get and the less quantity sleep that you'll probably need. And that just comes from trial and error, it sounds like. So just getting to know our body a little bit more. And and so if we wake up a little less tired, we can kind of note to ourselves that, you know, this this schedule works best for me or when can we start to, you know, feel the results and be able to tell like what's better than what? Sure. So so what I have people do is first go take my quiz, yeah. um, figure out your chronotype. That's the first thing you got to do. Then start to schedule it out. So I do, I have this thing on my website called a bedtime calculator. It's very simple. So what you do is you choose your morning wake up time. So if you're an early morning person and you get the book or you, or you at least go out and get the quiz done, it'll start to tell you some of those times that might be good for you, but you probably already know what's a a good normal wake up time for you. Then we know the average sleep cycle is 90 minutes long. We know the average person has five of those sleep cycles. So if you count backwards, 450 minutes or seven and a half hours, you start to figure out what your bedtime is. So let's make the math simple. Let's say that you wake up at 6.30, I would have you start going to bed at 11. If your chronotype is an early bird, then I'm gonna shift all that by two hours. Mm. If your chronotype is a night owl, I'm gonna shift that probably by at least one hour. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Then if you start waking up before your alarm, well, then your body's telling you something. So I ran this experiment on myself, and I went to bed at 11, hoping to wake up at 6.30. And I didn't, it failed. I went to bed at 11, I woke up at 5.30. I did it again, 11, 5.30. So I said, well, screw this. I'm gonna go to bed at midnight and see what happens. Guess what? I went to bed at midnight, I woke up at 6.30, I was in my zone and that's where I've stayed ever since. Mm. So it's absolutely okay to do a little experimentation on yourself in terms of timing for waking up and going to sleep. But once you figure out your zone, 
that's what you need to get to. Mm. And is that kind of the first step you kind of take with, it sounds like you do every a client business. patient that I have. Every, that's the first thing we do. First thing we is consistency. Chrono, yep, we figure out their chronotype and then we figure out what their bedtime and wake up time needs to be. Then it's a matter of figuring out ways to get them there. So if I've got an insomnia patient, I might create a specialized pre-bed routine that helps lower their levels of anxiety, lowers their heart rate, um, may even have some level of meditation, relaxation in it to help get them there. And then I might also create a morning routine for them. So what do you do when you wake up in the morning? You need to drink this much water, get this much sunlight, do this much exercise, and so on and so forth. So I develop these personalized routines for people based on these times. And can you tell me anything about maybe the the before bed and right upon waking up? I know there's not a cookie cutter solution, but maybe what are some of the things that are um, that you found are are very like proven to help someone fall asleep? And then what are th- some things that are important to do right upon waking up to help improve the quality of sleep and making sure we get the, the right amount of yep. sleep that night. So I, I created this technique and I call it the power down hour, right? So let's say your bedtime is 11. If you can at about 10 o'clock start to do, take that hour and chop it up into three 20 minute segments. So the first 20 minutes is just shit you got to get done, right? So it's the last email. It's in our house. It's getting our kids clothes and sports gear together, backpacks, that kind of stuff. Then 20 minutes for hygiene. So wash your face, brush your teeth, get in your pajamas, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then 20 minutes for some form of meditation, relaxation, prayer, something like that. Remember, sleep's not an on-off switch. It's like slowly pulling your foot off the gas and slowly putting your foot on the brake. There's a process that has to occur there. Giving yourself that 20 minutes to do that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a lot of my patients where that's where they do their deep breathing. That's where they might do progressive muscle relaxation. They might do yoga poses. They might do stretching. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can do in that period of time to really help slow your brain down and more specifically slow your heart rate down. The big factor that a lot of people don't get is you need a heart rate of 60 or below in order to enter into a state of unconsciousness for most people. So whatever you can do to get your heart rate there, that's what you would do before bed. And those are just a couple of the ideas that I do upon awakening. There's a couple of factors that I have everybody do. So number one, um, for some people, their melatonin faucet, if you will, will continue to run even after they wake up, which is that morning fog, oh, I can't clear the cobwebs kind of feeling. The easiest way to get rid of that is not caffeine. Um, in fact, caffeine actually doesn't help that situation at all. Sunlight does. And so having direct sunlight, I mean, I'm not saying you need to look at the sun, but either having a light box or having some level of direct sunlight during the first within 15 minutes of you awakening will actually turn off that melatonin faucet in your brain and make things extremely helpful. The second thing is hydration. Most people don't realize it, but we lose almost a liter of water each night just based on the humidity in our breath. And so we wake up dehydrated. If you drink caffeine, which is a diuretic, you're taking a dehydrated body and adding something that makes it more dehydrated. This isn't the good idea, right? It's, that's the time to drink you know, 16 or 20 ounces of water really get your body back into a, into a hydrated state and you'll see that your energy level increases quite a bit. The final thing that I have people do, and this is kind of a fun thing that I personally do, um, you have to be ready for it, but I during the last minute of my morning shower, I have the shower hit me literally square in the head and then I reach over to the handle and I start to make it cooler. And then I wait 10 seconds and I make it cooler and I wait 10 seconds and I make it cooler until it's it's cold. And then I turn it off. 
what that does is it actually shunts blood to your trunk. It's incredibly alerting and it brings you right into the present almost immediately. And it's a great way to start your day. I love that. There's so much to unpack there. That that hour before bed is something that I immediately am going to take away. Like just having that, <laughs> like that 20 minutes, get everything done. I'm sure a lot of people can relate that that seems like the, everything they're doing before bed, but to make that a container right. being like 20 minutes before and then shifting into hygiene and then preparing. Um, yeah. And then some, you know, some sunlight and things like that. And for people who don't have sunlight, you said there's, you know, other light alternatives, therapy. light therapy, whatever they can do. And the cold showers, I can do a test. They suck, but they help yep. so much. Um, Absolutely. You talked a little bit about caffeine and I'm, I'm, I got to ask, cause I, I do drink coffee. Do you drink coffee at all being the sleep doctor or sure. do you Absolutely. kind of step away from it? Completely. No, 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 no. So I don't have a problem with caffeine. I don't drink it every day, to be honest with you, but I definitely have a cup, probably somewhere between two and three times a week. Mm -hmm. um, and so here's the deal with caffeine is in order for your body to get out of a state of unconsciousness, you need two hormones. You need adrenaline and cortisol, and they have to jack pretty high to pull you out of that state. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. If you compared adrenaline and cortisol to caffeine, that would be like comparing cocaine to weak tea. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's so much stimulation that comes from those hormones. Adding a stimulant on top of that does almost nothing for your energy levels. Mm. If, however, you wait just roughly 90 minutes from the time you open your eyes to the time that you ingest your caffeine, what you will find is that that cortisol and adrenaline is beginning to drop. And then when you add caffeine, it actually lifts those hormones back up and gives you a little bit more uh, bang for your buck. Wow. So for most people, what I tell them is if you can wait. So if you get up at 730, just have your first cup of coffee at nine right? That's, you're going to hydrate, you're going to get your water, you're going to have your cooler shower, and then wait until you get to work to have your first cup of coffee. Or when you're driving, again, 90 minutes after you wake up, that's when the caffeine is going to have the biggest and best effect on you. On the other side of that equation, you want to look at when should you stop caffeine. I like people stopping caffeine somewhere between two and three o'clock in the afternoon. This is because we know that caffeine has a half-life of six to eight hours in some people. So we don't want it affecting people's ability to fall asleep at night by having too much caffeine on board. Now, I guarantee you there's somebody who is listening right now. This is what they're thinking. Huh, sleep doctor. He doesn't know <laughs> what he's talking about. I can drink coffee at night and I can fall right to sleep. There's always people out there that are thinking this. So let me address that issue right away. So first of all, there are different people have different caffeine sensitivities, and that's something to be aware of. I've got one patient, if she eats a Hershey's Kiss, she's up all night. I've got another person who can drink a double espresso before bed and fall right to sleep. So there are sensitivities. If you're one of those people who can drink coffee late, here's the thing I would challenge you with, is you might be able to fall asleep, but if I put electrodes on your head and I looked at the quality of the sleep that you're getting, I can guarantee you you're in light sleep. And so again, Sleep is not just a quantity game, but it's a quality game as well. You can have decaf espresso or cappuccino with dinner. I guarantee it. Um, and you'll find that you'll actually find uh, you'll get a little bit more refreshing sleep and a little bit deeper sleep without it on board. And that's a concept I'm kind of new to. For me, it was always growing up with the quantity and how much sleep I'm getting, but the quality is, is something that I'm just starting to do. And and even I was just wearing these blue light blocker glasses to try to yep. minimize the, the light I'm taking in. Can you talk to me a little bit more about, so you talked a little bit about caffeine, not doing that a yep. little bit too late. What else can kind of harm our quality of sleep? So the biggest factor is alcohol. Um, so alcohol is the number one sleep aid that's used around the world. More people drink themselves to sleep than anything else. But let's be honest, there's a really big difference between going to sleep and passing out. Okay. We want to avoid the passing out. We want to keep the going to sleep. Yeah. Um, I don't have any problems if you want to drink a glass of wine or two with dinner or beer or spirit or whatever your thing is. 
But remember, the human body, it takes the human body one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. So you need to give yourself the time before sleep that there's no alcohol intake so that it does not affect sleep. What we know is while sleep does make you feel sleepy, I'm sorry, alcohol makes you feel sleepy, it actually keeps you out of the deeper stages of sleep, stages three and four sleep, which is the physical restoration. This, by the way, is the main reason why people get a hangover, is because alcohol is affecting their ability to get into that deeper level of sleep. So that in and of itself is one issue. The other thing is it becomes a hydration issue. Um, half the reason you get a hangover is lack of deep sleep. The other half is dehydration. Alcohol is a diuretic. And kind of once you break the seal and you start to pee, you're peeing all night long. So do yourself a favor. And in between each alcoholic beverage, have a glass of water. Number one, it, it increases the volume of fluid in your system anyway. So there's not you can't just keep drinking, drinking, drinking. And uh, number two, it maintains that level of hydration, which you're definitely going to need. Mm. And um, that's something I'm, again, like I'm just coming to terms with it. In, my, in the past, it became, you know, pass out. So if, if I had maybe like five days in a row back in college where I couldn't sleep, I would turn to something like NyQuil or, or even like, and where does marijuana come into this? You know, in college, this was something I, I had dealt with and, and I just kind of brushed it over as, you know, this is a sleep aid. This is fine. This is helping me sleep. But I would often feel that, you know, after stepping away from it, I realized, well, that was not really helping my sleep because I, I would wake up groggy almost every time. And now that I've stepped away from it, I can realize like that that wasn't real sleep. So is there any research on kind of marijuana in the similar way that uh, yes. alcohol is? Yeah. So there's two different issues um, that we need to talk about. One is over-the-counter sleep aids, right? Because you mentioned some of those and then cannabis. Those mm -hmm. are actually two very separate topics. So let's mm -hmm. talk about over-the-counter first, and then we'll talk about cannabis. Totally. So when you talk about over-the-counter sleep aids or the PMs that are out there, 90% of them, not all of them, but 90% of them have Benadryl in them as the PM portion of that. All Benadryl is is an antihistamine, but the compound was built to last for 12 hours, which is why so many people get a hangover the next day when they use uh, a pain painkiller with a PM attached to it, right? That's why they're feeling that next day hangover. So that probably isn't the best method for helping somebody sleep. Um, there are more natural uh, substances. And, and let's be very clear here. Pharmaceutically induced sleep is very different than naturally induced sleep. It's just different. So if you're taking sleeping pills or over-the-counter stuff, that's going to give you one kind of sleep. Now, you could go the more natural route, which is supplementation. So I have my own line of supplements specifically for sleep. I have my own um, ingredient profile for that. People are welcome to check it out. It's actually called Sleep Doctor PM, um, and then I, but it doesn't have Benadryl in it. And then I have another one called Active Sleep Booster, which has CBD in it. So for folks who may not know, CBD is the non-psychoactive property within marijuana that helps with inflammation and has been shown to help with sleep. So now let's get into cannabis for sleep. There's nothing bad about cannabis for sleep, but you need to understand your different cannabis you need to understand which uh, lane, if you will, you're going to be in. You're going to be stay more on the indigo side as opposed to the sativa side. So the sativa side is much more of an energy promotion, whereas sativa is much more of a relaxation, whole body high. But you want to be careful. You want some THC, but you don't want something that's got a tremendous amount of THC. Now, first of all, the reason that I'm versed on this is I live in California. Yeah, okay, me too, It is me recreationally too. <laughs> legal here to be able to use cannabis. So if you are in a state where it is not recreationally legal to utilize it, or you don't have a medical marijuana card, I'm sorry, but I'm not, I'm not here to say break the law, right? That is not what I'm here to do. Absolutely. Um, but what I am here to say is if you, if you are in a state where it's recreationally legal or you have a card 
for it, then there's definitely some things that you want to think about. Again, you want to look at indigo versus sativa, and then within the indigo strain, you want to look at different THC levels. What we're discovering is it seems to be somewhere around an eight to one CBD to THC ratio. That seems to be very helpful with sleep. The data is not 100% in. We're still very early in learning this because, of course, since it's been federally illegal, nobody's been able to do research on it, at least in the United States, mm. in a very long period of time. So we're getting our data now from other countries, and we're slowly starting to see data um, and, and studies that are going to start coming out soon about here in the U.S. Yeah, it's fascinating because I have tried the CBD especially recently and I like it because there's no you know like you said psychoactive properties and it does help right. me kind of mellow out and fall asleep and and with the anti-inflammation properties it, it's a great fit for someone who's very ath athletic and but with the THC I just I'm so interested because it's uh, especially with just like peers and stuff I, I have so many people that turn to something like cannabis as a sleep aid but then mm -hmm. they there's so many reports of people just waking up groggy just you know this is all Right. You know, so, in my peer group, and then waking up without you know, without the dreams—that's a big one. So people right. so who smoke marijuana, REM sleep. Mm. So what happens is, is and and you don't actually lose all of your REM sleep, but you do. Many people report that the number of dreams that they have reduces, or they don't remember their dreams. Don't worry, you're still having enough REM sleep. It's not going to be detrimental. And by the way, Prozac completely knocks out REM sleep altogether. And there are millions of people who are taking that drug. Yeah for a very long period of time. Almost every SSRI has a major effect on REM sleep. So I don't want you to worry too much about the fact that you're not remembering your dreams. You are still having them and you are still having um, REM sleep. The reason that people have a tendency to get hung over or, or feel those effects more the next day is number one, the THC content could be too high. Number two, they're just taking too big of a dose, mm. right? And so what happens is, is that when you become more cannabis friendly, if you will, you, you need more and more of the THC to get the high that's associated with it. We're not really interested in the high from a sleep perspective as much as we are the relaxation response that will come with low levels of THC and the ability to just lower that level of anxiety. Many people need to start to understand that in the beginning of using cannabis for sleep, it, you may get that experience, that high experience, but over the course of time, it will start to decrease quite a bit. Do not jump on board and say, oh, I need to double my dose, triple my dose, or find higher THC levels. There's no data yet to show that that's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, I don't think that is either. And it, I, I don't, I'm definitely just in, coming from a curious place, and I do agree, like, cannabis can, you know, you can wake up a little groggy with a little too much, but I for sure... I'm in the same boat. I've had friends and family members take things like Prozac and these pharmaceutical things that are just so much worse, it seems like. So um, I love what you're saying and just, you know, very small bit of balance if you're in a legal state and if you're of age, of course. Um, so let's step away and let's talk about a little bit of athletic performance because my audience is greatly athletic, athletes. Do Does the amount of, you know, physical activity greatly impact the amount of sleep? We talked a lot about quality. But, you know, say I'm a, I'm a night owl and I have my, my hours, but then there's these days where I just put in like five hours or something crazy of athletic activity. How much does that affect how much sleep I need, how much more I need to recover, things like that? So it's, it's interesting. So there, there's several different scenarios that occur. So as an example, I've worked with professional athletes before. And when you're a professional athlete and you're training for five hours a day, you're a different kind of human, Okay. You're, you're in a different category altogether, and we do things very differently for the, those types of people than we do for normal people. Now, I'm a runner. I, do, I try to do three 5Ks a week, and then I do spin class on the weekend, and I have a trainer after I run. So I'm a pretty active 
guy. I would say I'd probably work out or spend roughly three hours, three times a week, and then maybe an hour and a half on the weekends each wow. day of the weekend. So I'm I'm fairly active guy. Oh, yeah. I do just fine on about six hours and fifteen minutes worth of sleep. So what we what we know is it some of it depends upon the activity. So as an example, if you're a swimmer, you may need a little bit more sleep because you've got a whole body activity experience. I will tell you this. The fastest way to improve the quality of your sleep, again, I know we're asking quantity, but the quality is exercise. It is very clear, the data is very clear, regular exercisers sleep better, period, end of story. So if this is a group that exercises a bunch, you should have a reasonably high quality of sleep. If you find that you don't, then that could be a signal, one, of overtraining. Um, and so when we talk about overtraining, especially with endurance athletes, or weekend warrior types of athletes where you're doing a Spartan race or you're doing a marathon or you're doing stuff that you're not professionally, you know, sponsored for and trained for. Sometimes you can overtrain and that can, the very early signs of overtraining is insomnia or um, unrefreshing sleep. So if that's something that you're noticing in yourself, try to scale back your training or talk with whoever you're getting your training information from and or look up overtraining and insomnia online and you'll be able to find some good information about it there. Um, if on the days that you do train, you might need a little bit more sleep. That is absolutely accurate. Again, just depends upon what you're doing. So like if I do a spin class for an hour and I blow through 850 calories and I do a 5K and it only takes me 25 minutes to do it, you know, there's a difference of the amount of exertion that's going on there, right? I don't need to add any sleep, any sleep after my 5K, but I might if I do a spin class and then train. Right. So you'll start to learn more about your body and what your body is looking for. But there really isn't a ratio or rule set. And it also depends upon your conditioning. If you're somebody that trains regularly, it really shouldn't change much in the way of your sleep patterns. True. But if you're starting a new training regimen or you're you know, training for a new type of race or a new type of event, be assured you'll probably need more sleep in the beginning. And I'd love, if you don't mind, for you to give me like a paint a picture for me, because I'm sure you could articulate it much better than me. And I, I'm going to, after this episode, I'm going to try to push people to, you know, be more mindful of how they're sleeping and how it can affect their athletic performance and, and even just their human performance. Because that's a lot about what my page is about, is just bridging the gap between what a healthy human is and what a healthy athlete is. So right. what can you paint a picture for me and tell me like, what is a, a sleep deprived athlete or student or worker look like? And kind of what is a, a fully rested one like? Like, how how big of a scale is this? Is it really dramatic? Do we really need to be paying attention that much? Like, can you talk to me about that? So it's interesting because there's data on this, believe it or not. And so there was a great study where it took pictures of people. And so it took a picture of you when you were well rested, and then you had to stay up for 36 hours, and they took a picture of you after 36 hours of being awake, and you had the same clothes. You had the same camera angles, same makeup, whatever, everything was the same. And then they took these two pictures of the identical person and they showed them to a different group of people. 98% of the time, the people could identify the sleep deprived individual versus the awake and alert individual. So just to be very clear, you're not fooling anybody out there, right? If you're tired, everybody already knows. The only person you're really kind of fooling is yourself, okay? And how, do, and how does that come across? It comes across in inattention, right? So you're not paying attention to the things you need to be paying attention to. Um, it comes across for athletes in their form more than anything, right? And so good form is everything for an athlete. I've learned that over the course of time. That's how I avoid shin splints and heel spurs and you know plantar fasciitis and all these other things is it's all about your form. Same with swimming, same with cycling, same with all of these types of endurance sports. So when you get sleepy, you get sloppy. 
right? And that's what I tell people all the time is if you're sleepy, your form gets sloppy and that's when injuries occur. That's when you see lower times. That's when you see all of those performance metrics that you're looking at really start to degrade. Now, how do you know when you're well slept? Well, actually the opposite usually occurs. When I work with people that are, let's say on the Olympic level, the difference between whether they're on the podium or off the podium usually has to do with how well they slept the night before, wow. right? Just to give you some indie. And these are the elite of the elite, right? These are, they're representing their country in a sport. They're the best in their entire country. And if they don't sleep well the night before an event, a race, a contest, it has dramatic effects on them because they're at such an elite level. Now, if you just like to run marathons, right, and then you're really just competing against yourself and your own time. Yeah. That's when you'll start to see things. So don't perseverate. Oh, my God, I've got to get the best night's sleep you know, before the New York marathon in order for me to get my best time. Yeah. may or may not hold true, but if you're not sleeping well for a week or two before that, you're for sure not going to get your best time. Yeah, I love that. I love that study of showing people you could actually see it on people's physiology and like how they look. Um, right. I'll, I'll wrap it up soon. I want to ask you a couple more quick questions. What do you think about, like I said, I used to write papers about this and give speeches about this in school about how the school system is not supporting my sleep and what I need as a, as yes. a growing adult. And then the work schedule is just kind of a mirror of this. You know, the school system seemed to be in this place because the work schedule, you know, the kids have to drop them off to be at work by eight or whatever it is. Do you think like modern society scheduling um, complements like a human need to get proper sleep? No, it doesn't, especially when you're talking about high school kids. So there's a there's an interesting biological occurrence that happens with high school kids in particular is that their whole biological clock wants to shift and they want to stay up late and sleep late. Um, it's And it's really, it's not their fault, it's their biology. And these are the kids that we're having showing up at school at 7 a.m., you know, and classes start at 7.30 type of thing. Nothing could be worse. It's really interesting because the young kids are the ones that are already up at that time. We'd be much better served by taking the three to seven-year-olds and having them have early classes and then bring the high schoolers in later, and they would do much better. The data is actually very consistent out of the University of uh, Minneapolis, where they actually did this in a school system. And what they discovered was is that all the high schools did a full letter grade better in their first two periods just by going to school later. Like it, wow. it, the data is compelling, but but parents don't want to change their schedules. The buses don't want to change their schedules. Like it's a mess. Yeah. And so when you look at the history behind the bus schedule, it's kind of interesting. Way back in the day, there actually used to be two buses. There would be an early morning bus and a late bus in there. Young kids got on the early morning bus and the adolescents got on the late bus. And then it got too expensive. And so they just combined it and everybody had to get on the same bus. Mm. And so what ends up happening is the kids who are older just have to get up earlier because the young kids are already up and the parents want to get them out and, you know, off to school. So we really would, it really would be much better in many different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to hear. And I, I think that's important for people to listen to this. I'm sure a lot of them are high school students being like, I'm glad it's just not me, but that was something I was passionate about, but I'm, I'm glad you came on and gave people, you know, start with your chronotype it's called. Start with your chronotype. It sounds like you've given us so much to, you know, compact right away for people who just started. So this is an important episode and I hope people go to your website, check that out and at least start with the consistency part. You know, if we're waking up early for school, you could at least, you know, begin going to bed maybe a little earlier or waking up in a way, a consistent way and, and applying that to the weekends and, and really starting to improve ourselves as, as athletes and as people. Yeah. One great thing about this podcast is I get to talk to amazing people like you. That I would never have this opportunity without this podcast. I'm very grateful for you coming on. Sure. Um, I'm going to ask a selfish question. With sure. all the success you've had, 
Um, looking back, I just turned 24. What's a piece of advice you'd give your 24-year-old self, Michael? Oh, that's an interesting question. What is a piece of advice I would give my 24-year-old self? Um, growth hurts, right? So if you think about growing, right, and you think about a plant, right, a plant literally has to destroy itself to get bigger, right? And, and we as humans, if I had known this earlier, I used to avoid pain at all costs, emotional pain, growth. I, I didn't like it, right? But what I learned over my years, I just turned 51 this week, is if you're gonna grow, it's going to hurt and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means that you're excelling, you're getting better, but there, it's a painful process in order to do that. So don't worry so much. If it hurts, it's probably actually okay <laughs> on a certain level. Um, I think that's one of the things that I would I would say absolutely. And then the other thing I would say that I, I wish I had taken more to heart, but I definitely take more to heart now is be an individual. Okay, if you don't agree, say you don't agree. Don't don't be a lemming, don't follow the crowd because I'm gonna tell you something. Look, I, I, I've had a lot of experiences that a lot, of, a lot of other humans on this planet have never had the opportunity to have and it's because I am a unique person, I believe in myself and I believe that what I have to say is important. And and I think that everybody out there has got those in them. So don't, don't say that you don't, don't just go along with the flow. If you've got an idea that you think is right and you think you can prove it, go for it. I fucking love that, Michael. Thank you for that. I feel that on a, on a physical level. That's some, some wise advice. And I really appreciate that for giving me an honest response. Uh, I'm so grateful. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And I'm grateful that you're an individual and doing the work you're doing. It's super important. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Anybody else feeling sleepy after that episode? <laughs> Talk about sleeping for 45 minutes and now I just want to go to bed and make sure I pass out tonight and get the best sleep possible. Thanks again to Michael for hopping on the podcast and thanks for listening guys as always. I love when you guys hit me up on Instagram, hit me up in the DMs. I'm active there and I see all your messages. So if you have feedback about the podcast, if there's something you like, if there's something you want to see more of, hit me up. I'll respond to you. We'll talk. And uh, I love creating this community, guys. You guys are really dope. I love you guys. And I'm happy we're all expanding our minds together and becoming uh, better hoopers and better humans. So appreciate you guys. Also, leave me five stars on the Apple iTunes app if you haven't already. And until next week, I'll see you guys later.